Chapter 14 of Silly and Its Legends by Henry John Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. A Cruise Round the Western Isles. The chief boatman and pilot of Tresco is waiting for me to set off on a sailing excursion to Annette and to the islands of the West. My conductor is himself a curiosity in his way. He is a handsome, dashing sailor of first-rate skill in his profession, and as civil and obliging as he is trusty. The people of Scilly speak the purest English of any of the Queen's lieges. Footnote. Some of the phrases used are odd. I asked a man how his wife was, and he told me she was quite clever and easy, that is, well. A person surprised is said to be frightened. Brave and punctual signifies firm. Rich means good. Footnote ends. Their correctness both of language and of pronunciation is really marvellous, and our coxswain is quite equal to other Salonians in this accomplishment. From some circumstances which it was out of his power to avoid, he was a little behind his time, but it was not his fault that he was so. "'I am very sorry to have kept you waiting so long, ma'am,' said he to a lady of our company. "'You must have thought me very much wanting in courtesy. In fact, quite a deceiver.' and he handed her over the dank seaweed and slippery rocks with a manner worthy of Sir Charles Grandison. Footnote. There is a general tone of good breeding in the manners of the Salonians that strikes a stranger forcibly. They have a self-respect which gives them confidence and real dignity in the presence of their superiors, and which is very far removed from presumption, or what is misnamed independence. When a person addresses you, it is with no assertion of equality, and yet there is, in the air of the people of the lower orders here, a something indefinable but striking and very different from the subdued manner of the English peasantry. If you go into a cottage, you observe the same thing. The owner, whether man or woman, does the honours of the house without embarrassment, hands you a chair with quiet civility, and gives you a simple welcome with the self-possession of one who knows the place both of the visitor and of the host. I certainly never saw in humble life so much good taste, so much what may be really termed well-bred ease as at Silly footnote ends. We spread our sails to the wind and ran gaily through St. Mary's Pool. Here formerly lay the frigate of the Grand Duke Cosmo, receiving and returning the salutes of the castle. A little farther on is the rock on which the Dutch East Indiamen struck and went to pieces, having on board a treasure of 250,000 guilders, many of which have been, and are still, picked up. The lady to whom it belonged was a passenger and was drowned. She was proceeding to join her husband, and by this sad accident, as the account somewhat quaintly adds, was prevented from seeing him again. Onward yet a little more, and we see the scene of the awful disaster that befell the fire families, the whole population of St. Agnes, on their return from their wedding excursion. Alas for all these terrible records of wreck and destruction. The sea glances from our bow in a thousand rainbows, catching the sunlight on the crest of every wave. A homeward-bound corvette comes within hail as we go merrily on. It turns out to be the old lioness, once the packet to Penzance, but now altered in her rig and engaged in the foreign trade. She belongs to the Pont of St. Mary's, and we learn from her crew as she passes us that all is well on board. Such incidents are very frequent here, but the voyage home is not always so lucky. The wreck of a West Indiaman, the Mary Hay, is now in sight. On the shore of Briar and the Renown, a ship of 600 tons from America to Liverpool, is lying alongside the new pier, waiting to be broken up. She took fire from spontaneous combustion, beginning, I believe, among some cashew nuts, 
and her cargo of cotton and tobacco was almost entirely spoiled. The hulls of the two wrecks look but sadly amid the gay rigging and smart finish of the Salonian vessels, which are remarkable for their symmetry and neatness. The glowing sunbeams seem out of place upon those battered and disabled veterans. The swell that sets in between the garrison and the guff makes our boat, the Crimscape, so called from being a waif saved from a wreck on the Crim Rock, dance and heel over to leeward till she goes gunwale under from the influence of the fresh breeze. We soon, however, are under the shelter and abreast of St. Owen's Cove. Readers note that's spelt St. Warner, W-A-R-N-A, but there is a pronunciation note in a later chapter. Readers note ends. The grim abode of the grim saint, or rather of the sinner, deified by sinners like herself, frowns down upon us. We care little for her malign influence. Time was that we should have shuddered to pass her shrine without an offering or at least a deprecatory prayer. Now her memory dwells alone with its solitude, and her once dreaded name is mentioned only in connection with a legend or a jest. As the former of these two alternatives, she is fortunate in being associated with it. Considering that these islands are of a respectable antiquity and have an historical pedigree of so many centuries, they are sadly unprovided with traditions. There is not, I believe, a satisfactory ghost in any of them, and accordingly a good phantom, a warning spirit, or even a dream that is verified, are sought in vain. Pixies are among the things fit to be told to the marines, and lovers of the supernatural had better buy Mrs. Crow's book and find out an apparition for themselves, for none is to be seen or mentioned here. But all this while we are gliding along towards Annette, with just enough motion to keep us alive as we recline idly in the boat and listen to the cry of the puffins from the rocks around us. Annette, or Agnet, little Agnes, has an extent about fifty acres. It is entirely uninhabited. Seabirds frequent it in great numbers and come here to breed, but it lies among the breakers, treacherously and beautifully still, and when you look round it you see desolation almost approaching savage grandeur. We go into our boat and sail on, but still we find rocks and still lines of reef and broken foam and little points dotting the surface and scarcely emerging from it. We tack and steer in a westerly direction. The Gilston, that was fatal to Sir Cloudsley's shovel, is pointed out to us. Everywhere evidences of a land submerged are spread around us. Everywhere danger, everywhere death. We pass under those fine cliffs that form the western extremity, both of the Guff and of the Wingleton Downs. The shadows are becoming longer as the day declines and lie ominously dark upon the bosom of the blue sea. We talk about the shoals with which the coast is rife, and tales of destruction and of wreck are repeated in a sad low tone, for each speaker is more or less in his own person, concerned in some of these. One of them excited a vivid interest from the locality in which it occurred, and from the greatness of the disaster, so I will close my sketch of our little trip by relating it as I heard today. At the beginning of the great French war, and about the close of the last century, the navy of France was more powerful and bolder in its actions than it became at a later period, when Nelson had confined the poor remnants left to it within their ports, and had bequeathed to his successors the inglorious task of watching and blockading them as they rotted away in harbour. When the war first broke out, expeditions frequently sailed forth and threatened the English coast and menaced even a descent. One evening, two large vessels were seen from the heights of St. Agnes, boldly approaching the island. Their character was unknown. They came on, as though they were friendly, or were sure of the skill of their pilot, making a glorious show, 
as the light fell upon their white sails and newly painted hulls. They did not communicate with the shore, nor answer the signal shown. A crowd soon collected, composed of those inured to the sea, whose eyes were too practised and too keen to be deceived. Their opinion was formed at once. The strangers were a French ship of the line and a frigate. They evidently came with hostile intentions to make an incursion at least, if not to seize the islands. There was no force at hand to repel the attack, if seriously made. All was therefore terror and alarm. A boat was manned and sent across to St. Mary's to give notice to the garrison of the coming foe. The best and ablest of the males prepared to follow them, hoping to be of some assistance in manning the batteries, and at least to do their duty if they could effect no more. By the time it was dark they were gone, and sad and sorrowful were the hearts of those that remained. They could offer no resistance whatever to the landing of an enemy. They could only suffer and be still, should they be doomed to behold, as was most likely, the rifling of their little houses, and perhaps to undergo worse violence at the hands of the ferocious Republicans. In such a manner, and with such anxious forebodings, passed that dreadful night. As soon as morning dawned, those who had kept their painful watch through the darkness hastened again to the cliffs. They looked over the broad sea, but they saw nothing. Far away in the distance gleamed a white speck, like a seabird's wing. Though already on the horizon, the old sailors pronounced it to be the smaller of the two French vessels. It was evidently alone. Where then was its consort? Where? At some few hundred yards from the western point of St. Agnes was an object that at last caught their attention. Not being able with the naked eye to make it out, they examined it with a glass and discovered a tricoloured pennant attached to what was like a flagstaff, and seemingly not more than a yard above water. A boat was put off to the spot where it lay. When they reached it, the mystery was unravelled. The disappearance of the hostile squadron cleared up. The line of battleship had struck upon a sunken rock and gone down with all her crew. Her consort had fled in terror. All that was seen of the noble vessel was the pennant that had floated from her mainmast. That slight streamer of silk was the funeral pall of six hundred brave men who had perished in silence and in the darkness of the night their efforts to escape unavailing their cries for help unheard a few bodies only were thrown up by the waves and they were buried in the churchyard of st agnes footnote amid the former misdeeds of the islanders the manner in which the church was built deserves to be remembered as a set-off in sixteen eighty five a large sum allotted to them for salvage was voluntarily devoted as a free-will offering on their part to the erection of a house of prayer. Two others had stood and fallen successively to ruin near the same spot. Footnote ends. The islanders point out their graves covered simply with turf, for they are strangers who sleep below, and their names none can tell. End of chapter 14. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.